I am among you as one who serves. All right, Luke chapter 7 is where we're at this morning, and I want to read you a story this morning. It's actually two stories that make up one story, part one and part two. And what we see in this story is two very unique people, two very different people who are on the opposite ends of, of, the, of the social and cultural spectrum, couldn't be more opposite in who they are, but yet have the same need. That alone reminds us of this. All of us are unique. All of us are different. No one is like you. God made you that way. God uniquely created you special, different, wonderful. We celebrate that in our culture. That's a big deal, diversity and your uniqueness and my uniqueness. We don't look the same. We don't smell the same. We don't come from the same thing. We don't like the same things. We're very different. But even amongst our differences and the vast differences that there are, all the way down to our DNA, we're also very alike in some ways. We all have belly buttons. We all get hungry. We all need sleep. We all have opinions. Even though they're different, we all have them. And one universal thing is that every one of us has needs. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how well off things are. There are things in your life that you have need of and you need help with. You see, because we're all broken. And that brokenness causes problems in our life. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have problems and issues. You, you don't have it all together. Neither do I. It's something that we have in common. And Jesus came for our need. And he's not afraid to step into our need, even in the most impossible situation and the most impossible need that we could have. And we see that demonstrated in this story in two parts. And I have you say seated as we read God's word this morning, because we're going to read the whole text and then just talk about it uh, this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he'd finished all these sayings in uh, the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And now Centurion had a servant who was sick to the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these words, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Part two. Soon after, he went to a town called Nain, 
And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. And then he came up, and he touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and the surrounding countries. So two people, two parts, two stories, two separate situations, two separate towns, two completely different circumstances, but yet so much the same. And we begin with a centurion who had a servant who it tells us was to the point of death. Now, a Roman centurion was a big deal in those days. Uh, he was a Roman soldier. And he was more of a captain or general of about 100 soldiers. Um, would be seen today similar as a, a sergeant major. Very well respected. Very well to do. In the Roman Empire, as they took over other provinces and other countries, they would send in their army. One, obviously, for defense and to police the place. So you, you revolt. We, we have our army there. And so this guy was in charge of a hundred soldiers, partly in part to police the situation. But the way Rome would take over other countries wasn't just by force. It was also by caring for the things of the community. And so oftentimes when they would come in, not only were these soldiers kind of weapons for the state, but they were also a blessing for those communities because they would be able, the community would be able to submit projects that needed to be done and help from the Roman government. And what it taught the people was to become dependent upon the Roman government. And so the Roman government would, would use these Roman centurions not just as soldiers and captains of an army, but also as project managers for local projects. And so these were very diverse. This is a highly respected person, a well-educated person, strong and powerful person who who did a lot for this community and was a big deal. Everyone would have known where he lived and everyone would have respected when he walked through the town because of his power and his authority, his significance and the importance of him in that community. But what we see with this Roman soldier, this Roman centurion, was something different. So it tells us in verse 2 that he had a servant which was a slave or a bond servant. We don't know the ethnic heritage of this uh, person. We don't know much about him, but we do know that he's sick and he's to the point of death. That's not a good thing in that world and in any world to be a slave, but even worse to be a slave who is sick. In the Roman system of overseeing a state, there's a lot of old documents that we have that talk about how to run a state and manage an estate um, in those days and times. And one of the things that is said frequently in different documents of how to run a Roman estate, uh, which is certainly what this man had, he was very wealthy, he probably had a lot of things, was that each year you're to do an inventory of your tools and your equipment, and you're to discard the old ones and 
replenish the new ones. I mean, we understand that and we know. What, what do you do when your dryer breaks? You get a new dryer, something like that. So it's just simple advice, but also in that list of tools to discard when they break were slaves. So very often when a person who was already degraded by being owned by another human being came to a place in life where their life was impaired, where they aged and could no longer work, or like in the situation of this man, got sick to the point of death very often and without regard the owner was able to throw that person out just like a tool. That's not what we have in this story. We're told that this Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick to the point of death cared for him. Says that he highly valued him. Now you would think that, well, that may maybe he paid a lot for, maybe this guy was just really important to his estate and to his job and what he did. When you look at the word, it, it means so much more than that. It means to honor. It means to hold in high esteem. This was rare and unique for a person to consider someone like this. What we have here is that this busy and powerful man loved this young man and cared for him. And so when he got to the place and point of being sick, this Roman centurion cared for this man like he was his own son and his own child. He steps into his life and and has compassion for him and wants to see him healed and better. Likely he had gone down different paths. He had probably gotten him into physicians and done everything he could to preserve this young man's life, but he couldn't. But in verse 3, the centurion hears about Jesus. And he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. He sought Jesus. Why? Because that's what you do for people when you care about them. You act and seek Jesus. Take note of that, friends, that you care for someone, you act upon their behalf. And the most definitive and powerful thing that you can do to act on a person's behalf is to take them to Jesus, is to seek Jesus on their behalf. So he seeks Jesus. He sends a a group of people, Jewish elders, which, by the way, is a very respectful thing to do because it was wrong in that culture, at least the Jewish culture, it was seen, and the Roman culture as well, it was seen uh, inappropriate um, and wrong for a Roman or a Gentile and a Jew to speak. And so out of respect for Jesus... And out of respect for his religious custom within the Jewish religion, um, he sends Jews to go do the speaking for him. Not because he couldn't, but because he respected this man. 
And so he sent important people. He sent Jewish elders, men that would have been uh, respectable. And they come and visit with Jesus and they say, listen, Jesus, this guy, um, this guy is worthy for you to have him do this. So we know you're a healer and we know you've healed many people. And uh, he heard that too, that you've been around healing people. And so this guy, of all the people you've healed, you've never helped a person like this yet. This guy's worthy of it. This guy's a special guy. This guy's a unique guy. I mean, Jesus, he loves our people. So certainly this guy had a reputation of not just being a a person. He really did care for people, and he really cared for the Jewish people. He'd probably been their leader for some time and been over them for some time, encountered them, and he looked upon these people with compassion. He really cared about them. I mean, to say that he loves our nation, he cares about us. Likely, this guy was actually beginning to kind of step into Judaism and step into their faith a little bit, cared for them. Even even did something because he cared for them. It says that he himself built our synagogue. So one of the projects that oftentimes Romans would do when they took over a providence was, was a religious thing. And so they, they felt like religion was a good thing because of the morality uh, that it brought people. And so as Roman governments took, as the Roman government took over nations, they didn't do away with the local religious system. Oftentimes they helped lift that up and they helped it. And so there's numerous requests, and there were numerous times that the Roman Empire built other religions' places of worship. And so that was the case here in Capernaum. There was a need of a synagogue, and the Romans helped build the synagogue. But it tells us that he himself built it. Likely that meant partly that he was the project manager over that. He was the construction manager over the production of that. But he also gave to it generously. That he was probably the lead giver and one of the biggest givers, which would have bought favor for the people and made, him, made them think because he did that they loved him. It was something genuine. It's something real that he did for them. And so Jesus, this guy is worthy of you to do this because he's a unique one. He's a special one. This would be a big deal if you could help him. And it would be a big deal for us if you could help him. And so Jesus, verse 6, went. What a word. A request is made. Jesus goes. Listen. When we ask, Jesus moves. When we ask, Jesus answers. Jesus himself said, knock, and it'll be opened. Seek, and you'll find. Ask, and you shall receive. And here, Jesus does just that. A request is made to heal a person, to come visit this person and heal him, and Jesus answers. I want you to know that every prayer that you've ever lifted up to God, he didn't just sit there and receive it and ponder. Hmm. I have to put you on the waiting list. I have to think about that for a little bit. When we ask, he acts. So Jesus goes. And as Jesus approaches the home, the Roman centurion steps in and he sends out people of his home and he says, basically, stop. Listen, I don't know what these people told you about me. Um, obviously, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, 
the Roman centurion that told these men to tell him who I am and what I've done and that I love the people and that I've built the synagogue, they did that for him. They did that on their own accord. Uh, what we find in this Roman centurion is way different than the messengers that he sends. And uh, so the Roman centurion stops him and he says, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to enter my house. And that means two things. Number one, I don't want you to violate your religious custom. Like I respect it and uh, I know that you're a holy man and a good man. And man, I'm far off from that. So it's a statement of humility. And it's also a statement of respect for Jesus. So I'm not worthy for you to come in my home. And then he, he uses this illustration. He says, just say the word and it'll be done. And I know that that can happen because I'm a man of authority. I, I lead soldiers and when I tell one of them to go, they go. When I tell them to come, they come. Why? Because I have authority over them. They do what I command. I tell one of my servants to, to do something and they do it. I understand what authority. And what this guy was understanding about Jesus is that Jesus has authority. And that Jesus had authority even over death. Understanding Jesus' authority and trusting Jesus' as authority. Jesus, I, all I need you to do, I know it's enough for you to just say it and it'll happen because you have authority. So he makes this statement and Jesus is amazed by it. He, he's wowed by it. He's taken back in a sense. He hadn't heard this before. It says, it says that he's marveled at him. And he turns to the crowd and he says, I tell you, man, I've not seen Israel, even in Israel, have I found this kind of faith in anyone. This is, this is unique faith. Jesus marvels at this man's faith. What was it about his faith that he marveled at? What made it so marvelous, this faith? How do you make Jesus marvel at your faith? Well, there were three things. It was a seeking faith, it was a humble faith, and it was a trusting faith. He sought Jesus. He was humble before Jesus, and he trusted Jesus. It's as simple as that. Seeking, humble, and trusting. And then in verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What's unique about this is that we're not told exactly what happened. I mean, we're not even told that Jesus said anything. I mean, he said, say the word, but Jesus goes even further by not saying anything at all. And the person's healed. Which leads us to part two. After that, Jesus left that place. Didn't even stay around to, to hear the response. Didn't even stay around for the praise and the celebration. He just left and Went about a day's journey. It took about a day probably to get to this, the town of Nain. And as they approached the town of Nain, they come to the city gate. City gate was kind of like town hall. It was kind of like the mall. It's like where everybody gathered. And it's where all the business happened. It was where all the important things took place. And as they approached the city gate, uh, the crowd with them uh, is met by another crowd. So you have two crowds. Two crowds there for very different reasons. You got one crowd with Jesus and just following him. A large entourage that was following Jesus at this point in time. Probably teaching and and seeing the miracles, and they were being ministered by Jesus. And so they're walking in this town. They meet this other crowd that was gathered for a very, very different reason. 
a reason of grief. And as we're told in the story, Jesus sees that it's because of a funeral, basically, that there's a young man that's died. And then it says, the only son of his mother, who was a widow. It's not just a funeral. This is a tragic funeral. It's a very sad funeral, especially in their custom and culture and their time. See, a woman in those days and times was very dependent upon her husband. So this woman had already faced a great deal of grief when she lost her husband and she was a widow. She was already put in a very vulnerable, marginalized situation because she had lost her husband. But the hope was she had a son. We don't know his age, whether he was a teenager or whether he was a young man. But the hope was is that he would take care of his mother, that he would care for his mother, that at least she had her son to care for her, but he dies. You have tragedy, you have grief, on top of grief. This woman is hurting, this woman is hopeless, this woman is scared. In all the worst feelings that you could have, she's having that day. And the community recognizes it, the town and community of Nain recognize it, that's why there's a large crowd gathered there were mourners there. There were people carrying the casket. And they were headed out to the graveyards to bury this son, weeping and crying. And, and they meet Jesus. It's really unique, the, the meeting. You have the meeting of two crowds. You also have the meeting of two only sons. Not only was this young man, the only son of his mother, Jesus was the only son of his father. And it's very likely that even at this time and point in Jesus' life, that his, his stepfather, Joseph, had probably already passed away. And so, he knows what it's like to see a widow dependent upon her children. And you have two sufferers. You have this woman who is suffering beyond measure. And you have the man of many sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And Jesus, we're told, has compassion on her. He sees it. He sees it for what it is. He sees the problem. He sees the circumstance. He sees the pain. He sees the grief. And he has compassion. Jesus is described by having compassion numerous times throughout the Gospels as he saw desperate situations and difficult situations and bad situations. He sees it with compassion. And I want you to understand something. Just the way that Jesus saw this widow, Jesus sees you and me. He sees our pain. He sees our problems. He sees our brokenness. He sees our sin. He sees our grief. He sees our addiction. He sees our struggle and our strife. He sees our anxiety, our depression, He sees our broken heart, and he has compassion. So Jesus says to her, stop crying, which, by the way, that just seems really insensitive, all right? I've been to a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals, and never once have I felt urged to tell the family, um, get down from the pulpit and say, hey, listen, 
stop crying. I got to get through this sermon. I need y'all to stop wailing and crying and, and stuff like that. It just seems really insensitive that Jesus says this, and it would be. But that's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He's like basically saying, hey, you got to see this. Knowing what he's going to do, knowing what's going to happen next, he sees the moment of joy and the moment of celebration. So just basically, lady, hang on, hang on, hold up. And Jesus goes over to the casket, which was likely um, an open casket. It was probably a, um, made out of, of straw of some sort, of a basket in a sense, a large basket to carry a body open. And he goes and he touches it, which immediately, by the way, made him ceremonially unclean, which is why people are stunned. They're shocked that this religious leader just touched a dead body. Jesus says, young man, arise. And he does. And immediately a widow's grief is turned to joy. Hope is restored. A future is happening. Jesus gave him back to his mother. She gave his only son, her only son, back to her. Don't, don't miss this. Don't let this just go by you. Don't let this just flip off and roll off your ear and Jesus just raised someone from the dead. That's a big deal. That's the biggest deal. I mean, he already did something astonishing in part one. He prevented death. But here he goes further and he reverses death. We have become so commonplace with that because that's part of our doctrine that's part of our philosophy we've heard these stories but listen this is not just a story this is a truth that Jesus has power over death don't let this be lost on you don't let this be commonplace with you He has the ability to prevent it, and he has the ability to reverse it. In fact, Jesus said at a very similar situation at another funeral in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. There is nothing that can stop Jesus. There is nothing too impossible for Jesus. Even death, which is the most irreversible thing that any human being faces, we don't have an answer for death. Gosh, we don't even have an answer for COVID. We don't have an answer for death. Once it's done, we can't undo it. Here we see that nothing is impossible for Jesus. Even death. He can reverse it. He can prevent it. He has power over it. Which is such an incredible point of this whole story because it leads ultimately to, to what Jesus culminates his life in, a death. Followed by a what? 
a reversal of that death, a resurrection. Right here in this story, right here with this centurion and with this, this widow, you see Jesus displaying the truth of the gospel of who he is, that he came to reverse death, that he came to overcome death, and he came to do it for all people. You couldn't have two more opposite people. You have a rich, religious, wealthy, non-Jew, and you have a poor, lonely widow. And Jesus meets their need. That's a gospel truth. That there's no one too impossible for Jesus. And there's no one that Jesus did not come to save. It's for everyone. Whether you are rich, religious, got it all together, powerful, popular, influential, Jesus came for you. Or whether you are poor, hurt, broken, outcast, nameless, Jesus cares for you. He came for you too. There's something I want you to see in this that goes even further. Why death? See, Jesus overcomes death, and this story is a story about Jesus overcoming death. But, but why do we die? I mean, we all face it. Every single one of us faces death. You, 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 you're all headed there. We don't know the date. We know your birthday, but we don't know the death date. It's a surprise. We have no idea when that day will be. But it's all coming to us, something we all face. Why? Doesn't that kind of stink? Would it be... Nice if we didn't have to go through this. And you know what? On top of that, we're all affected by death. Like when someone dies, it hurts, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it wrecks lives. It, it completely lifts the world upside down for some of us sometimes. And rightly so. It's a tragic thing, and it puts people in very difficult situations. Why? Why is there death? Because of sin. That doesn't mean sin causes the death, although it certainly can. The fact that this world is broken to the point of death is, the, is because of sin. Is that sin has broken this world so much, that sin has depraved this world so much that everything dies, and that we're all headed that direction. We deserve it. It's part of it. And this world is corrupt, and this world is broken. And as a result of that, we experience a lot of really bad things. We experience pain and difficulty and harm and hurt. And ultimately death. And so the deeper point in this is not just that Jesus overcomes death and has power over death. Ultimately the point of what Jesus is making, which is also the point of the gospel of Jesus, is that Jesus overcomes sin. That he breaks the power of sin. That he has authority over the power and the effects of sin. And everything that comes with sin. Jesus came to die on the cross to save us from our sin. And Jesus proves that by overcoming everything sin does. Because the ultimate result of sin is death and Jesus overcomes death. Demonstrates it here by reversing it, by preventing it. And then one day doing it himself with his own life. Dying and then raising the life and then giving that to us. Jesus overcomes sin. And everything that comes with sin, that is really 
good news. Because every one of us is dealing with what comes from sin. We are all different. We are all unique. And while we celebrate diversity, there is one thing that every one of us has. And that's pain and problems and needs that are there because of the reality of sin. Just like this centurion and his servant, and just like this widow, Jesus answers. He looks upon it with compassion, and he acts. And he does that for you. You see, our pain points, just like these pain points in this, these stories, give a window for Jesus to walk through. Gives us an opportunity to realize we need him and to invite him in to meet our pain to heal our brokenness and to reverse the effects of sin in our lives. What's your pain point? What, what is it in your life? Listen, there's not a person in here who's not in some way dealing with something and that has problems in some way or pain in some way. The person you're sitting next to is in pain in some way and has problems in some way. In fact, look at your neighbor right now and just tell them, you got problems. Yeah, and so do you. Josh, you said that with a big old grin on your face to your wife, Christy. You got problems now, buddy. <laughs> we all have problems, and our problems are ultimately a result of sin. It may not be sin specific, but it's sin in general that we're broken, and it hurts to be broken, and it hurts to live in a broken world. And what we see from these stories, and what I want you to understand is that Jesus steps in. Jesus cares. And Jesus wants to serve you at the point of your pain. And it's not just that he cares, because that's really sweet, right? It's really sweet that he cares for us. It's that he can. See, those two things are really important because... It's one thing to care about something, like, like, listen, like your car may break down, and I'm so sorry. I care so much about you, and I care so much about your car. I'm sorry you have to walk everywhere. I really, really care, but I cannot do anything to help you because I don't even know how to change my own oil, all right? I can't help you, so what good am I? But there's the flip side of that, being able to but not caring. You see, Jesus is both. He cares and he can and that's what Jesus wants to do for you. He cares about you. He cares about your problem of sin. He cares about the problems you're facing. He cares about the pain you're experiencing. He cares about the effects of sin and how they have affected you in your life. He can. Ask him. Seek him. And trust him.
Church, we need to understand that about people. Everyone is hurting. Everyone is broken. And everyone has a pain point. And as God allows us to see into those opportunities, as God allows us as people who care and who want to do something about it, see, listen, it's our responsibility as God's people to take that care, put it into action by taking a person to Jesus and taking that need to Jesus. There are people in your life that God has introduced to you that are hurting. And if you care, take it to Jesus. Take them to Jesus. Act. He can. Cares. So ask him. Father, we thank you for your word. God, there's so much power in your word. There's so much power in your word that you don't even have to speak. So much authority. We serve and we speak with right now, Lord, a powerful, holy, mighty God that nothing can stop and nothing is too big for. So, Lord, because that's true, we lay our burdens down before you. We lay our sin and our addiction, our habits, we lay our grief and we lay our hurt, we lay our anxiety, our depression, our worry, our pride and our anger. We lay the scars of our past and the scars that are being currently, presently inflicted. We lay the problems that we've caused and problems that have been caused on us because you care and you can. There's not a thing that sin has broken that you can't fix. We lay them down. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that have not laid their life down before you as a life that needs to be saved because of the brokenness of sin and the reality of sin. Would you press upon their heart their need for your salvation, their need for your resurrection, their need for you to raise the dead in their own lives by changing them, forgiving of them of their sin, and transforming their hearts, minds, and lives. Would you call them out this morning? Would you come to them this morning and save them? It is in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray.